Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The word of the Lord. Human beings are directional creatures. We are goal-oriented people. A journey with a goal or a destination is an image that's constantly present in literature and in film, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Into the Wild or the animals coming home and homeward bound or even Dumb and Dumber. There's a journey and a destination, and you're following these people or creatures on their way to something. We see this in sports. If you ask any baseball team during spring training, hey, what's your goal? What are you doing? What's your aim? The teammates aren't going to say, I actually don't know why we're here. I guess we're going to play a little baseball. I don't know. They all will say the World Series. Any football team is going to say the Super Bowl. At the beginning of the season, you're aiming to win it all. You have a goal and a direction somewhere you're going. And we see this in our individual lives. You see this especially in a college student who's preparing to enter the young adult world. They have a vision of their life before them, a direction they want to go, a career. Then maybe get married. And then, of course, have a house. And then kids. This American dream, some version of it is in their head as a direction they're going to go. Somewhere about middle age, once you have all those things, you decide you're going to run a marathon because you need new direction to go, a new goal to seek after. There's always something more we have to be pursuing. We are highly directional, goal-oriented creatures. The Bible suggests this is born into us, and it's actually the way creation is made itself. The story of the Bible is the story of God the Creator creating things that are going somewhere towards the restoration of all things under His Lordship. Everything is going in a direction, and the Bible suggests so are we. If you were to walk this through, the Bible says from early on, we are made in the image of God, but because of the fall, because of sin, that image of God is marred in us. It is broken, but Christ came to redeem us, not just to redeem us to save us, but to redeem us in order to restore us to glory into the image of God again. And actually, 
one of the ways that it's talked about is being made into the image of Christ. So we're finishing off a series called Beginning with Christ that was looking at an Anglican catechism in the first couple sections of it. The last questions we're on today, and question number 17 of this first section, is what does God desire to accomplish in your life in Christ? What is the direction? Where's it all going? God desires, the answer is, to transform me into the image of Jesus Christ my Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit. I was made in the image of God. That has been marred. And now through redemption in Christ, I am being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the true reflection of God in human flesh. We see this in the Bible as well, in 1 Corinthians, in Philippians, and in our Romans that we've been looking at, Romans 8, there's this passage that talks about God's sovereignty, and in the middle of it, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, those God foreknew, he also predestined not just, it doesn't say for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for heaven, those are implied in what goes on around this, but to be conformed to the image of his Son. You may have a goal for your life and a direction you're going, but this is God's. He wants to make you into the image of his Son. He wants you and I to be like Christ, to be Christ in this world. So how do we live into our salvation, becoming like Christ? Our very last question, number 18, is how does God transform you into the image of Christ? Over time, so think about that, over time through corporate and private worship, prayer, and Bible reading, through fellowship with God's people, through pursuit of holiness of life, through witness of the gospel towards those who do not know Christ, through acts of love towards all. That is how I am made more and more into the image of Christ. But that's too much, again, for one sermon. So instead, we're going to focus on one passage of Scripture, Romans 12, which we had just read. And we're going to use Romans 12 to understand what we need in order to become more like Christ. It's one angle at looking at that question. To say what do we need to become more like Christ out of Romans 12, the answer would be we need total surrender, we need a renewed mind, and we need one another. So let's break that apart using Romans 12. Starting in verse 1 of Romans 12, I'm going to read it, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, really, by the mercies of God, to present or offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So right away, the Roman readers, who were either Jewish or Roman in that church that Paul is writing to, would have understood some of the language Paul is using here, the language of sacrifice and of worship, sacrifice and worship. They understood that, whether they were pagan or Jewish in their background, the view of how you approached gods or Yahweh in the ancient world was through sacrifices. You had temples and you brought your animals or other offerings and you brought your sacrifices to God in order to appease him, in order to win his favor or keep him on your good side. Or at least with the Jewish people, it was because God had chosen them and this was their response of sacrifice, offering their most expensive things to God. 
But as Romans makes clear in the chapters before this, Christ comes along and through his death on the cross does away with the whole sacrificial system. Sacrifice of animals or anything else is no longer necessary for entrance into the presence of God. God's wrath for our sin has been fully and finally appeased and dealt with through Jesus' death on the cross. And what Paul is talking about here in Romans 12 is how we respond. How we respond by offering ourselves to God. And he's suggesting that it is our spiritual act of worship. We can see it in verse 1. You can pull it back up again for me. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is suggesting that when we offer our whole lives to God, that is what worship is. In other words, worship is not just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Although in Protestant circles, that's how we talk about this. In a Catholic circle, you might say this is a mass, but in Protestant circles, we talk about coming to worship as if, you know, that hour and a half, Sunday morning, 10 to 11.30, I worshiped. I'm a worshiper. But what Paul is talking about here is your whole life becomes an act of worship. Our whole life is meant to be lived to glorify and honor God. And not just our body, although he uses bodies, but that's meant to to represent the whole of us. So yes, you do offer your body and what you do with your body to God, but also your thoughts, your time, your money, your relationships, your own dreams and goals in life. Everything becomes his. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, in his commentary on Romans put it this way, worship is where the creature, that's us, recognizes that he or she is a creature and God is the creator. It, meaning worship, is an act of submission or ordering myself under the divine. It, worship, is also by implication a denial of my own divinity, a denial that I am Lord of my life. All of life should be doxological, an offering up to God, an act of worship. All of life is an act of worship. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, offer yourselves. Now, the problem for many of us, if we're Americans, is that we compartmentalize our spirituality. Today, in today's world, in in America at least, people are actually more spiritual than they've ever been. But it's a part of our life. And so we think, okay, I go to church, or I give to charity, or I volunteer, and that's my spiritual side. And we think of religion by nature, as Americans, we think of religion as one part of a healthy life. Like, I exercise, I sleep, I eat well, I worship. But Paul is saying, I want all of your life to be worship, which sounds really weird if you say, I want all of your life to be sleep, or all of your life to be eating. But here Paul is saying, yes, I want all of your life to be worship. See, with Christ, compartmentalizing our spirituality is not an option. Everything becomes his, or you don't actually have Christ. Which means this is, once again, a lordship issue. Who or what 
is God of my life. Jesus himself said you cannot serve God and money, right? But by implication, you carry that out to anything. You cannot serve God and your friends. You cannot serve God and your career. You cannot serve God and your kids' happiness. You cannot serve God and your own dreams. We cannot hold anything back. And so when Paul says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, he means present all of you, your whole self and your whole life to God. In other words, the way to get to the goal, to get to the end in Christianity, to be made like Christ, the way to get there is by giving up. Surrendering everything to the Lordship of Christ, holding open-handedly all that we are, and basically saying, regarding any aspect of my life, thy will be done. Thy will be done and not mine. So we start by giving up, by offering everything. The second thing we need to do besides surrender all is we need a renewed mind. Paul says this here in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Do not be conformed to this world. When he says just that first phrase, do not be conformed to this world, the this world is actually the word eon or aeon, ion, it's age, this age. Don't be conformed to this age. In German, it's zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the cultural moment, the what's good and important and valuable here and now. Every culture has these. They're the assumptions that we all carry because of where we were born and where we grew up and where we live. It's the things that we take for granted that are accepted and obviously true. Everyone knows that that's true. It's how good and bad are defined in a culture. It's how goals in life tend to be shaped in a given culture. It's how you define success or what values are held up in a given culture. So in the modern West that we live in, some of our cultural assumptions, some of the conformity of this age is, and it's not all bad, right, okay? But it's freedom, equality, prosperity. Those are things we just assume in the West. Some others of the modern West, it's better to be young and hot than old and not. The modern West, no one can tell me what to do. And you can become whatever you want to become. You can. And ultimately, do what makes you happy. These are all assumptions that we have, that we carry with us all the time. And what Paul is suggesting in this phrase is that we are being made into the image of something, either the zeitgeist or Christ. And we have to realize that our culture is the sun and the water and the soil that we are planted in. It feeds and shapes us. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but have you ever been discontent Have you ever found yourself comparing your circumstance to somebody else? 
that is a very American thing to do. Because it's based on a set of assumptions of what is success or who deserves the good life, that having more is always better. These are very American things that shape us so that we will be discontent with whatever we've just bought. We'll always be comparing our life to somebody else's. In other words, as Paul is suggesting, we think far more like this age regarding everything than we probably realize. Instead, Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The gospel, the Christian message, is just that, a message of good news. It is something you hear and you believe. It's not something you do. It's something you hear and believe. And that means saving faith involves your mind. You actually have to learn what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It's a message you learn and take in with your mind, actually. And one of the primary ways we grow spiritually is by increasing our understanding, our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. It's why in in Christian culture, even for centuries, learning has always been important. And it's why um, the Bible is translated into every language it possibly can. It's now over 500 languages globally with hundreds more uh, segments in languages, and the goal being to get the Bible translated into every language group possible. Why? So that people can read and learn themselves so that everyone can read and study and meditate on and learn and engage your mind by hearing the good news of who God is and what he has done. So what Paul is suggesting here is that Christianity is not anti-rational. That's actually a very Eastern understanding of religion and spirituality. In the final episode of Mad Men, the AMC series, Don Draper, the 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 marketing guru is having an existential crisis, and so he ends up at a commune in Big Sur, California, overlooking the ocean, sitting in a grassy field with a bunch of other people at this commune with their legs and their heads in meditative position. And the idea is basically, in Eastern meditation, empty your mind. Empty your mind of attachments to this world. Get rid of stuff that you're thinking about, all your worries, all your anger. Get, get rid of your mind. That's an Eastern way of thinking. Christianity is the opposite of that. It is fill your mind, but what are you filling your mind with? Christianity, though, is not intellect alone. Some of the least Christ-like people are those who are doctrine-first people. They're very harsh. They know all the answers. And they don't look a thing like Jesus. And you can also, as I've experienced through the years, be an incredibly brilliant biblical scholar. There are people out there I've had to write with or under or read their stuff, and I am not as smart as they are. They know far more about the Bible and biblical languages than I ever could. And they have no faith in Jesus Christ. It's not intellect alone. It's neither emptying your mind nor intellect alone, but rather it is the head affecting the heart. It's having a knowledge of God 
that isn't just a knowledge of God. It's a knowledge that melts you, that undoes you, that sort of explodes on you. Nicole Cliff is a writer, blogger, former atheist. And in a May 20th article in Christianity Today, she wrote an article called How God Messed Up My Happy Atheist Life. She said she was reading a tribute to teacher Dallas Willard, Christian teacher Dallas Willard, that was written by her friend's dad, John Ortberg, a pastor and writer, in which John Ortberg talks about how Dallas Willard had this view that no one merits heaven, no one earns heaven, no one deserves heaven. So she's reading through this article by John Ortberg that is a tribute to Dallas Willard, and here's what she writes, Nicole Cliff. A few minutes into reading the piece, I burst into tears. Later that day, I burst into tears again, and the next day, while brushing my teeth, while falling asleep, while in the shower, while feeding my kids, I would burst into tears. At this point, I reached a crossroads. I sat myself down and said, okay, Nicole, you have two choices. Option one, you can stop reading books about Jesus. Option two, you could think with greater intention about why you are overwhelmed by your emotions. It occurred to me that if option two proved fruitless, I could always return to option one. So I emailed a friend who was a Christian and asked if we could talk about Jesus. About an hour before our call, I knew I believed in God. Worse, I was a Christian. It was the opposite of being punk rock. What happened during that hour I figured out what I already knew. What happened during that hour was the natural culmination of my coming to faith. I had been cracked open to the divine. I read books that I would have laughed at before the cracking and the stars lined up and there was God. This is why apologetics, in my opinion, are hugely unconvincing. I had to be tapped on the shoulder. I had to be taken to a place where books about God were something I could experience without distance. It was alchemical. Nicole Cliff was a brilliant person, a writer, an atheist. She had knowledge, but when she got a knowledge of God that moved from her mind to her heart, it melted and undid her. She could not be the same. When that begins to happen in our life, not just for the first time, but again and again, it, you begin to have a gospel-renewed mind. A gospel-renewed mind transforms all of your views, transforms your view of yourself, of others, and of the world. You know, most of us in the West have this idea of self-esteem. I need more self-esteem, which is basically a view of I'm going to build myself up often on the basis of my giftings or my success in life. And it's easily prone to your own failures or actually comparing yourself to others. But a gospel-transformed mind has a view of self that starts from God and how God views me through Christ. So I'm no longer looking at myself internally. I'm saying, how does Jesus view me? He died for me. He loves me. This changes how I view myself. It changes the direction of my life as well. I'm not living for my happiness, but for the glory of God. A gospel-renewed mind changes our view of others as well. 
Instead of seeing others as somebody to compare myself with, compete with, or as a threat to my happiness or my place, it's possible to actually be moved with compassion because as your mind is renewed by who God is and what he's done, you start to see others through Jesus' lens. You start to view them as he does. Christians can be very judgmental. We're good at that. And in that process, it's us comparing ourselves to others or seeing them as a threat. Jesus' heart broke for sinners. His heart broke for the Pharisees, for everyone. When Jesus transforms your thinking, you begin to see others with a heart of compassion like Christ. And a gospel-transformed mind changes our worldview. That's ultimately what Paul is getting at here. Don't be conformed to the spirit of this age, but be transformed. Have a worldview that is a God view of everything. That the gospel and what God has done is the lens through which you look at the entire world. It's how you interpret life and determine truth. Everything that I approach is viewed through that, who God is and what he has done a renewed mind. And lastly, in order to do this Christ-like thing, we need one another. Paul writes in verses 3 through 5, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The whole rest of chapter 12 and all of 13 and all of 14 is how we're supposed to live out our life in Christ, and it's all in relationships and community. Paul is suggesting in order to become like Christ, to be made into this image of what we're meant to be, we need to be part of the body, that we are one body with many parts, each of us a part of the body. Now, think about it this way. If you're walking along the street, or let's say you came into church today, and as you walked in, you saw on the ground by your seat a finger, just sitting there, a finger. It's horrifying. You'd probably scream, you'd run, you'd call the police. It would be ghastly. And yet, when you walked in here, there were hundreds and hundreds of other fingers in here. Look around right now, they're here. And yet, none of you screamed. Why? Because they are where they belong. They are integral, even if they're not noticed. They're a part of a body. We are not meant to be alone. We do not come to faith on our own, and we do not grow in our own. And this is a challenge to our cultural assumption in the West of individualism and autonomy, right? The aim in the West is do what makes you happy, and the only law that's, that's existent in our culture right now, the only real law, is don't criticize or constrain somebody else. In other words, don't get too close to somebody else if you disagree with them. It's better just to stay apart. The American Protestant church has lived that out as well. We have elevated the nuclear family, which sounds like we're elevating community, but we elevate the nuclear family, now we live in a culture of nuclear families that are completely autonomous from everyone else. No one else has a say in my household. Now, we have community, 
the five of us, but no one else has a say. We're people with little commitment to church, to place, to community, to anything. Why? Because as an American, I know it's my home, my career, my money, my time. Christianity suggests that we are made for relationships, to be part of a body, that we are formed in community. In other words, you do not and will not become the image of Christ alone. We need one another. I was a very spiritually mature 21-year-old. I knew more than most other 21-year-olds when I was 21. And I thought, I'm pretty spiritual. I'm not that self-absorbed like most other young adults. And then I got married and quickly learned just how selfish I am. Later on, I found myself being constantly impatient and easily angered. And I asked my wife of a couple of years, why am I so quickly impatient and angry? She said, because you have kids. Before that, your time was your time. You could do whatever you wanted. Now, somebody else is demanding it, changing it, affecting it. Only, only in close, ongoing, and committed relationships only in ongoing, close, and committed relationships, and I mean more than acquaintances, more than just people you see every day or know their names, and honestly, more than your immediate nuclear family, if you happen to have one. Only in close, ongoing, and committed relationships is our sin and self-obsession exposed. Because you quickly find in close relationships that those other people don't serve and worship you like you deserve. Only in ongoing, close, and committed relationships am I forced to give and serve and sacrifice for somebody else. In other words, I become like Christ, who sort of sacrificed himself for me. Only in ongoing, close, and committed relationships do I cultivate empathy and compassion. Because when somebody that I care about suffers, I suffer with them. I walk in it with them, and I'm exposed to new angles of challenge and suffering, and my empathy and compassion increase. And it's only in ongoing, committed, and close relationships that I actually see and experience God fully as they love me, as they reveal God to me as image bearers of Christ. Okay, so you should feel guilty now because probably none of us are living up to this. But I don't think Paul wants us to just feel guilty. He wants us not to get to work, get better. He wants us to go to the gospel. That's what the therefore is there for in verse 1. I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore, and the therefore should actually be at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek, which means it's at the emphatic place. Therefore, so what's the therefore, therefore? It's what precedes it. It's Romans 1 through 11, which is God's gospel message. It is the mercies of God, how we are sinners deserving of wrath, but Jesus Christ has died for us so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we have the hope of eternity and glory and that God will never leave us or forsake us. In view 
of the mercies of God. Offer your bodies, offer yourselves. See, any attempt to offer yourself to be transformed, to be like Christ, that is not a response to the gift and mercies of God is religion. You may go to church, give money, try to be a better person, but at its root, you're trying to earn God's favor so that he owes you a good life. Think about a paycheck. If you've received multiple paychecks in your life, do you still, every time you get a paycheck, go, wow, I got a paycheck. They paid me for that. Can you believe it? A paycheck. No, you think, I, I worked, I earned this, I deserve this. If anything, it's a little small. <laughs> but the gospel, the gospel response is a constant wow. A constant wow. A constant realization that you have gotten paid for work that somebody else did. We must grasp the fullness of the mercies of God and let it melt and undo us. Then giving ourselves wholly to God will be obvious and natural. The phrase that he uses here is a spiritual act of worship or spiritual worship. If we can put that back up again. That word spiritual, next one, next slide. Spiritual down at the bottom there? No, we don't have it? Okay. Spiritual is logical. It's actually the word logikos. So what Paul is actually saying is, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves to God, but in view of God's mercy, it's your logical worship. It's your reasonable worship. It makes sense. If you actually fully grasp what God has done, then giving yourself fully to God will not be a difficult thing. When the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ moves from our head to our heart, then total surrender to God is not some masochistic religiousness, nor is it hard and begrudging work. It is a joy and a pleasure. It is an act of worship. God loves us. He died for us. He intends to restore us to the image of God in Christ. And we respond with worship. All that I have, and all that I am, I give to you. Let's pray. God, we do not look like Jesus, but you intend to make us into his image. But we need faith, trust, and a mind and a heart that is melted by the good news and mercies of God in Jesus Christ. So melt us with that news. Renew our minds. Connect us to one another. And make us into the image of your Son, the one we offer ourselves to, and in whose name we pray. Amen.